Hey, this is Todd and Julie Mullen, senior pastors here at Christ Fellowship Church in South Florida. Whether you're across the street or across the world, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week to join for this message. We hope that it encourages you and inspires you to get more out of life. Well, hello and welcome to Christ Fellowship. So excited that you're with us today. I wanna give a special shout out to Trinity Church joining us live for the first time this weekend. We love you, we love you, and all my Christ Fellowship Everywhere family. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series where we're studying the book of James. And one of the things that our pastor encouraged us to do in week one was to read the book of James together. We had over 10,000 people who jumped into that devotional and hopefully have been reading the book of James over the last couple of weeks. And so I wanna put your knowledge to the test a little bit today, church, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna play a little game called Which James Said It, okay? So I'm gonna throw out a quote and then I need some audience participation. I'm gonna give you multiple choices options, and you have to tell me which James said that thing, all right? So here's the first one. It's uh, nice and easy. It says, you can't teach others if you are living the same way, okay? Was it James Monroe, James Brown, James Madison, or the book of James, all right? So here's what I get your answer ready. And then on the count of three, I want you to shout out your answer, okay? And we'll see who's right. So here we go. One, two, three. Some people don't know how to count to three. One, two, three. All right, let's see. The answer is, ooh, James Brown, James Brown, James Brown. Who got it right? Anybody? Okay, all right. Here's the next one. All right, here we go. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. Is that James Dean, the book of James, James Taylor, or LeBron James? Okay, on the count of three, one, two, three. All right, let's see. The answer is B, book of James. All right, maybe we have been reading. Maybe, maybe. Here's the next one. You don't build a bond without being present, okay? Kind of sounds like the Bible, right? Is it A, the book of James? Is it B, James Dean, C, James Brown, or D, James Earl Jones? The answer is one, two, three. Ooh. Oh, I hear some A's. What do we got? Answer is D. Gotcha. James Earl Jones, all right. Two more, I think. What do we got? Here's the next one. Twisting the truth. To make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom, it's the furthest thing from wisdom, okay? Do you think it's A, B, C, or D? The answer is? Aha, excellent. Book of James, good job we're doing there. All right, one more, one more just for fun. Winter, spring, summer, or fall? All you got to do is? All right, who's that, who's that? Uh, Okay, we do know James, we do know James. Good, good, good. All right, well, I just wanted to see how we're doing because over the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned, we've been studying the book of James. And I wanna remind you of a few things that you probably know by now, but will help us to have a richer, fuller, deeper understanding of this text. So we are reading together the New Testament book of James. Now, James is the author of this text, right? That's not like a trick question. And, but James is the brother of Jesus, okay? You may know that he's the brother of Jesus. That's specifically important because James comes to faith in Jesus after the resurrection. So throughout the entirety of Jesus's life, James is there and he's watching and he's witnessing and he's listening. But after he sees Jesus resurrected, like in bodily form back from the grave, that's when James puts his faith in Jesus. And as a result of his response to the resurrection, he becomes one of the first leaders in the church in Jerusalem. So one of the first leaders, one of the first churches. And when we read this text, we need to understand 
who he's writing to. So James in the Bible makes it specifically clear that he is writing to people just like him. He's writing to people who grew up in a Jewish context. They have believed God, but now after seeing the resurrected Jesus have placed their faith in him and they have become Christians. So he's writing this book to believers and he's writing to believers who are scattered throughout the Roman empire. Now, primarily James is writing this book because he has a, a critique of the church that he is seeing scattered throughout the Roman empire. And primarily his criticism of the church is this, that you are not living out the faith that you claim. His primary indictment, if you will, of the people that he's talking to is, is that they are not living out the faith in Jesus that they claim. He's pointing out that there is often a disconnect between what we believe and how we behave. He's pointing out that there is sometimes a, a disconnect between what we say and what we do. Have you ever had to watch something where the audio didn't match the video? You know what I'm talking about? Like I think of those like old Kung Fu movies, you know, where you're like watching them and there's, they're like overdubbed and people are talking, but then their lips like just keep moving, right? Or, or if you're sitting at your computer and you're watching something and the audio doesn't sync up with the, with the video, what happens? You're like confused, right? You can't pay attention, you're frustrated, you're trying to fix it, and, and you're wanting to do anything and everything you can to make sure that the audio matches the video. Well, James's primary complaint of the church is that their audio doesn't match their video, that their, that their lips don't match their lives, that there's a disconnect between their belief and their behavior. And so he, in this context, is writing to them a, a very practical book in which he's addressing different areas of their lives where the audio doesn't match the video, right? And that's why he talks about hearing and doing. That's why he talks about faith and works. It's why he talks about taming the tongue, right? Because what he's saying is, if you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, then it ought to make a difference in the way that you live. Now, I think most of us would agree with that, but it's important that we understand that the primary purpose of the book of James is to help believers make sure that their audio matches the video. Now that's great for us because if we're honest, we still struggle with the same thing, right? If we're honest, there are moments in our lives where there's a disconnect between what we believe and how we behave. There is sometimes a disconnect between the faith that we claim and how we live. And so James spends a good deal of time talking about how to fix that problem. Today in our study in the book of James, we come to James chapter four, and something is different here about this text than about the rest of the book of James. So here's what he writes, James chapter four, starting in verse one. What causes the fights and quarrels among you, he asks. So, so he's writing to them because he sees that there is tension in the church, right? That believers are fighting, that there's, there's disconnect, there's fights and there's quarrels. And so he says, what causes those fights and quarrels among you? Don't they actually come from your desires that battle within you? See, for the majority of this book, James has been very outwardly focused. He's focused primarily on the external, right? The, our behavior, the external. But here now something changes because he says those fights and quarrels among you, don't they actually come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. 
He's using metaphorical language here. He's not suggesting that they actually kill, but what he's saying is that you don't want what you have, so what do you do? You lie and you cheat and you steal and you maneuver and you manipulate and you try to get it, right? You, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so that's why you quarrel. That's why you fight. That's why you have tension in your relationships. But he says you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you, don't, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, as we read this passage of scripture, we should see easily that there is a shift in what James is talking about from the external now to the internal, right? He's primarily addressed things that are happening on the outside, but now he's saying there's something deeper. Right? Yes, there's an obvious tension amongst people. There's sometimes fights and quarrels in relationships. But what he's saying is that that tension is actually caused by what's going on inside of us. It actually comes from in here. What he's saying is that there is a tension that exists inside every one of us. Well, what is it? We desire, but we don't have. So we do whatever it takes to get it. We can't get it, so then when somebody else has what I want and I can't get what I want, then I'm gonna criticize and complain or tear down or destroy. What he suggests is that God actually wants to fill our lives with good things, but we're often so consumed with our own pursuit of pleasure that we miss it entirely. What he's saying is that the fights and quarrels and tension the problems in our relationships, those are just symptoms of a deeper problem. He says, don't focus there. Don't, don't get fixated on the exterior. Don't just stick to the surface. Don't treat the symptom, but actually consider the cause, right? Because if you in your personal life, like if you started getting headaches all the time and you started to notice there was a pattern and then maybe your vision started to blur a little bit, you wouldn't be satisfied with like just taking Advil or putting drops in your eyes. You would go, no, this is an indication that something deeper is wrong. And you would not just stick to the surface, treat the symptoms, but you would consider the cause. And what he's saying is that the, the symptoms of the tensions and problems that we experience in this world, they're actually caused by something different it's actually the war that wages within us. There, there's something more significant going on. Well, what's, what's going on in here? He, he talks about it at the end of James chapter three, and he describes the war within us by using words like pride and envy and entitlement and selfish ambition. And part of what he's saying is that we often allow those drivers to get behind the steering wheel of our lives. And if we don't address that problem, then we are headed for destruction and devastation. We, we've got to get a hold of the war that wages within us. And we've got to acknowledge that the real problem is actually not out here. It's in here. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> Yeah, so great, right? Make me feel so good. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. So here's what James writes. He continues. He writes this. You adulterous people. Can I get an amen? No? Okay, all right, sweet. <laughs> you adulterous people. Here's what he says. Listen carefully. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But here's the good news. Amidst the bad news, he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And then he gives some instructions. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. He's talking about in the acknowledgement of our sin. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now we can't study the book of James and skip over this passage of scripture because it's actually central to all that he is talking about. Because here for the first time, we actually get from James, not just the how, but also the why. Now there's a lot about this particular passage of scripture that should grab our attention, right? Like if you don't feel at least a little bit of conviction, we probably weren't listening. So he's being very direct and he's being very straightforward and he's being very critical. Now, as we read that, it would be easy to think, well, James can't possibly be talking about me, right? Like how many of you ever hear a Bible verse and you're like, I know who that's for. (laughs) That's for somebody else, right? You can't possibly be talking about me, James. But he is, he's talking about me and you. Remember his audience. He's writing specifically to believers in Jesus. He's writing to Christians and he's addressing the things that he sees in the world. And so we're not off the hook because basically what he's saying is that in the Christian life, you can't be one foot in and one foot out. You can't. You can't be half in, half out. Actually, what he's saying is that every moment of every day, you have a choice to make. And the choice is this. You choose between friendship with the world and friendship with God. That that every moment we stand at the crucible of this decision and we have a choice to make. Will we choose friendship with the world or will we choose instead friendship with God? And what he says is you can't have both. You've got to have one or the other. Now, to be clear, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about like people who don't know Jesus or like, you know, things in culture. He's not actually referring to that stuff here, right? Because your mind probably goes like, well, Jesus ate with sinners and all that. Yes, he did, absolutely. He's talking about the world in here, the war, war that rages within. What he's describing is the system of the world. Things like envy and pride and selfishness. And what he says is that every moment of every day, we have an opportunity. I'm either gonna choose friendship with the world, which means my my will, my ways, my pleasure, or I'm going to choose friendship with God in which I'm submitted to his will, his ways, his pleasure. This passage of scripture should change our thinking patterns. Like I've actually found as I studied the scripture over the last couple of weeks that when I have a choice to make, like when I have something that I need to do, I've actually found myself thinking, am I choosing friendship with the world or am I choosing friendship with God? And and I've actually found that it helps me to make the right choice if I think about it as being black and white. 
Because he's saying you can't have one foot in and one foot out. I think sometimes when it comes to our lives and when it comes to kind of the sin that we experience in this war within, we almost feel like it's kind of a, a tug of war, right? So it can actually feel uh, like we're sometimes getting pulled in multiple directions. It can actually feel like my life feels a little bit like this. Like, you know, sometimes it's friendship with the world and friendship with God. And I'm almost just like a victim. I'm just at war and this is what it feels feels like, right? I even think about Paul in scripture who's like, man, the thing that I don't want to do, I'm always doing, right? Or the thing I do want to do, I find that I can never do. And sometimes we have this mentality of like, it's just the tension of life and I'm a victim to it. But that's not how James describes this spiritual battle. It would be a mistake to think that this is somehow some cosmic game of tug of war. Actually, what he's saying, don't miss this, is this is how we live. That I am pulling against God. My natural inclination is towards the world that I am doing everything I can to pull against God, that I'm fighting against him. And if we acknowledge that tension, it actually changes things because we'll never realize how beautiful it is that God never lets us go until we realize that we're actually pulling against him, right? Actually, the more I understand how God has been faithful to me, the more I will be motivated to be faithful to him, right? That's why actually in this passage of scripture, James says this, if you draw near to God, what? He'll draw near to you. This is not a tug of war, this is a lifeline. That no matter what we do, no matter how hard we pull, God will never let us go. Do you believe that today, church? Come on, can I get an amen? That God will never, ever let us go. But it leaves us in the place where we have a decision to make. Will we choose friendship with the world or friendship with God? I think that each and every one of us can actually choose friendship with God over enmity with the world and enmity with the world. We can actually make the right decision. And I just wanna challenge you today that part of what James is talking about here is that each and every one of us should make the choice to be enemies with the world and friends with God. Why should we do that? Why should we choose enmity with the world? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One would be this. The world won't give us what we want. The world won't give us what we want. In, in fact, maybe it's better to say the world can't give us what we want. And, and what happens in our lives is that we are so often consumed by the pursuit of pleasure and we so often lean into the things of this world that we are looking for things from the world that only God can truly give us. And you know this to be true because no matter how successful you are, no matter how high you climb the ladder, no matter how big you build the portfolio, what happens? All those things come up empty because the world promises us something that it can never give. The world cannot satisfy the things that we truly want and need and desire. And, and if we go constantly to the ways of the world and the system of the world, we will find time and time again that its promises are in vain. Let, let's not miss it. The, the, the crux of what James is saying here, it's the equivalent of me standing up here today and saying, you are cheating on God. Stop flirting with the world. Not, not my words, James's words, okay? Be mad at him, not me. But that's, the, that's what he's saying here. We have a choice to make. And the reality is that we often choose the world and the world can't give us what we want. There's a better choice to make. And the choice is actually friendship 
with God. And when you choose to pursue God and you choose to pursue his will and his ways and his pleasures, the closer you get to God, the further you are from those things of the world, envy, pride, lust, selfishness, all of that. And so we have a decision to make every day. Will we go to the God who can give us what we want and what we need? Or will we satisfy ourselves with the system of the world that will inevitably leave us empty every time? So one of the reasons that we need to choose friendship with God and enmity with the world is that the world can't give us what we want. Another reason would be this, wherever you go, whatever you do, God is with you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, God is with you. And we often use this idea as an encouragement, right? Like no matter what happens to you, God is with you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's always present with you. There is no place that you can set your foot where God is not with you, right? We know the truth of this verse, but think about it. Wherever I go, like everywhere, whatever I do, This idea is beautiful and is encouraging, but it should also be a little convicting. Like there's some accountability in the fact that God goes with you wherever you go. So, so we need to understand a little bit of what James is saying here. The way he talks about it in this verse, he says, is it not true that the scriptures say that, this, that God jealously longs for the spirit that he put within you, right? Now, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about why or what that means because his audience already understands something that maybe we miss today. And what he's referring to is the idea that you, as a faithful follower of Jesus, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit that God has placed his spirit inside of you. Actually, this goes all the way back to an Old Testament idea. The word dwell that's used in this passage of scripture in the Old Testament would have been translated tabernacle, right? So if you know some Old Testament history, you might know that there was a time in the history of God's people where the presence of God was contained in the tabernacle, right? Actually, they had to carry him around in a box for a while in the desert. The Ark of the Covenant signified the presence of God. And what happened? They did that until they built a temple, which was the place where the glory of God dwelt. And in the temple was a tabernacle where the presence of God was placed, right? Then what happens? Jesus steps out of heaven and into history, lays his life down on the cross. And what happens when Jesus gives his last breath on the cross? The veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, which means that the presence of God is no longer divine to a place or, or confined to a building or confined to any of those things. But the presence of God now dwells in the people of God. And so when you place your faith in Jesus, what happens? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are the tabernacle, the place where the Spirit of God chooses to dwell. So what does that mean? Everywhere I go, the Spirit of God goes with me. Everything I do, the Spirit of God goes with me. Let's be honest. There's some places that we go God shouldn't be. I think you know the heart of what I'm saying. There, there's some things that we do that God would not do. And anytime we do those things or go those places, we bring 
God into them. I, I had a thought this weekend, it might not be for everybody, but it actually helped me. I've never thought about the position that my sin puts God in. I've never thought about that before because every time I sin, God has to make a choice because he loves me, but he hates sin. And so anytime I step into one of those, I step away from God's will, I step away from God's ways, that I think about the position that I'm putting him in. I've had moments in my life where I had to apologize to other people because I thought, I'm so sorry I put you in that position, that you had to make a choice there, I'm sorry. And I thought about this week, the position that my sin puts God in because he loves me, but he cannot possibly condone anything that is not of him. And so we have this choice to make and we need to understand that wherever we go, whatever we do, God is with you. And so I think we need to evaluate as we go about our lives, the places that we sometimes bring God and the position that we sometimes put him in. Why, why does this matter? Because the Bible says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive and at work in you. What does that mean? We're being made into the image and likeness of Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit in us. God is forming you and fashioning you and he's making you into the perfect temple of his Holy Spirit. And so why would we attach ourselves to the things of this world and bring him into those places if God is doing a greater work in us? If I realize wherever I I go, whatever I do, God is with me. It adds a different weight to the decisions that I make. And I pray that I would be able in those moments to choose not friendship with the world, but to choose friendship with God. So we should choose that because the world can't give us what we want. Wherever you go, whatever you do, God is with you. And finally, because even in our faithlessness, even in our unfaithfulness, God is completely faithful to us. No matter how many times I turn my back, no matter how many times I run away, no matter how many times I mess up, God will never let me go. He is completely faithful to us. Now, as we read this passage of scripture in the book of James, we might actually miss the beauty of the gospel that is here if we don't know specifically what he is talking about. The, the phrase that draws our attention to this idea is when James says, you adulterous people. I tried to find a translation that maybe, maybe wasn't that direct. It's not there. <laughs> But if you read this verse, James 4, 4 in your Bible, likely there's a little asterisk next to James 4, 4. Now I would encourage you, anytime that you read your Bible, do not ignore those, follow those rabbit trails because they actually are important. So anytime you're reading a text in your Bible, right? So we're studying the book of James. We should talk about how to study your Bible. Anytime you see an asterisk, you need to look at what that means because more often than not, it's a cross-reference. So here's what it does. It, it is other scripture, you know, parallels in, uh, in scripture that give you fuller and greater context of what's happening right here. And often those asterisks are there to give us context for things that the original audience would have understood that sometimes we miss in our reading of the text. And if you look at your Bible and you read James 4, 4, you will see an asterisk that points you to an Old Testament book called Hosea. Now you may know the story of Hosea, but if you don't know the story, this, this 
this, this label that James puts on us would be offensive. If you do know the story, it's beautiful. In the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, primarily chapters one through three, here's what happens. God speaks to a prophet named Hosea. And uh, he tells Hosea this, his original instruction to him is, I want you to go and I want you to marry an unfaithful wife. So God gives Hosea the instructions. He says, I want you to enter into this marriage relationship and I'm just gonna tell you right now, I want you to do this knowing that she's not going to be faithful to you, that she will cheat on you. And so out of obedience to the message that Hosea has been given by God, he goes and he takes on an unfaithful wife. Her name is Gomer. Isn't that a beautiful name? Please don't be insulted if your name is Gomer. I actually think it's really beautiful. Like if we have another daughter, I'm gonna propose to my wife like, hey, what about Gomer McDermott? Doesn't that just have a nice ring to it? It's great. So he, he marries this woman named Gomer. And so they begin their relationship together, right? Which should be the happiest day of his life. He knows that she's not gonna be faithful to him. And after not very long, like the kids start showing up. There's one, there's two, there's three, and at least two of them we know from scripture are not his. And so this is not the relationship that he thought it would be, right? This is not the marriage that he grew up th- thinking that he would be in. But what happens is this, eventually Gomer is so unfaithful to Hosea. Like she literally goes from man to man to relationship to relationship. She sells herself out. And as she does that, she eventually becomes so undesirable that no one else will go near her. No one else wants anything to do with her because of where she's been and what she's done and who she's been with. And then God speaks to Hosea again. And what he tells Hosea to do after his wife has been sold into slavery because nobody wants anything to do with her, he says, I want you to go and I want you to buy her back again. And so Hosea, in obedience to the Lord, he he goes and he purchases his wife back from slavery for about six weeks salary which he, in this time, he already would have paid for her once. There already would have been a bride price, but he goes and he buys her back out of slavery again at his own expense. And, and basically what he tells her is the only thing I'm gonna ask of you is that you just now be faithful to me. Gives her a completely clean and fresh start in this book of Hosea. Scripture tells us very clearly why God would ask him to do this. Hosea chapter three tells us that this story is written, that Hosea was asked to do this incredible thing because it's a picture of how very much God loves us, his people. Hosea chapter three said this, then the Lord said to me, go and show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and she is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods, little G, and love their sacred raisin cakes. This is a story about us, how much God loves us. Because what do we do? We turn to other gods, little g. We replace God with things that we don't want, we don't even need. I don't know if that last line, raisin cakes, is like a joke or what. Like I'm sure there's something deeply significant biblically about that line, but here's what I know. If you wanna ruin a really great cake, just put raisins in it, right? Like. Raisins ruin everything, okay? At best, you can make a case for salad, but I'm not about that either, all right? So, so what I know is this, like he, he's driving home the point that the, the people of God often turn to things that don't make any sense. Why? Why? 
This incredible Old Testament passage is a picture of God's relentless love for us. His never giving up, never stopping, always chasing after us, relentless love. You, you might know this, but the name Hosea, it means salvation. It means salvation, you know why? Because we were unfaithful to God. We, we have turned our backs on God. We have sold ourselves into slavery of this world, and yet God loved us enough to pursue us, and not just pursue us, but to send his son Jesus to buy us back from sin, death, and slavery. Even though he already owned us, even though he already paid for us once, he sent his son Jesus to this world to buy us back from sin, death, and the grave. One, one theologian called the blood of Jesus the red coins of redemption. It's a picture of salvation. And you just need to know today that God loves you more than you could ever possibly understand or imagine. Why would I be friends with the world when God did that for me? Why, why would I choose the way of the world when God has been so very faithful to me? And so I wanna challenge you this week, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I wanna challenge you to ask yourself the question, in every moment, in every situation, just ask yourself this, am I choosing friendship with the world or submission to the God who has been faithful to me? Ask yourself, am I choosing friendship with the world or am I choosing submission to the God who has been faithful to me? I wanna close our time together today just with two prayers. One, for anyone who considers themselves today to be a follower of Jesus, that you and I, would make the decision in every moment to align ourselves with the things of God and not the things of this world. So I'm gonna pray that prayer. I also wanna pray the prayer for anybody who's never begun a relationship with God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. He came for you, he lived for you, and he died for you. And in the person of Jesus, in a relationship with him, you too can experience salvation, you can be saved. And so I wanna pray those prayers today. So let's pray all across our church together today. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, but you want one, <laughs> you recognize what Jesus has done for you today and you wanna be in right relationship with God, we're all gonna pray a prayer, but I want you to say this prayer just a little bit louder than everybody else. Just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Make me new again. Cleanse me, forgive me of my sin. Make me holy. And for the rest of my days, as best as I know how. I will live a life that honors you. The Bible says that if you prayed that prayer, the old is gone and the new has come, that you're adopted into the family of God forever. But if you're here in this room and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I just wanna pray that we would choose friendship with God and enmity with the world. God, help us to draw closer to you every moment of every day. God, help us to be more like you, that we would not be satisfied with the things of this world because the world can never give us what we want. But God, in response to your faithfulness to us, in response to your love for us, God, that we would choose submission to you and allegiance with you, and we would not be distracted by the things of this world. Make us new again, we pray. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen, amen. Come on, can you help me thank God? Thank you again for spending time with us today. If you're looking to take a step in discovering the more that God has in store for you, just text the word podcast to the number 
441 and select the option that applies to you. And if you enjoyed this message, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. A special thanks to those of you who generously give to all that God is calling us to do together. It's because of you that everything that we do is possible. We'll see you right back here for next week's message.